yeah, I opened for Louis C.K., Joe Rogan, Dave Chappelle. Really? It was so cool. It was cool. Did you ever like talk to Joe Rogan at all? He's one of my favorites. Yes. Uh, Joe Rogan told me to do jujitsu. <laughs> Of course. Was he still talking about like DMT and, you know, all that stuff? I don't remember that. He just kept saying to me, Jiu-Jitsu, dude, I'd be doing it right now. Kept saying that. I want to do it now. (laughs) That's how much I love it. Yep. Yep. He's still like that. Thank you for taking a seat with the chairman. Welcome to Chairman of the Board. I I bet the board is spelled (laughs) B-O-R-E-D. Hey everyone, how you doing? Welcome back to the Chairman of the Board podcast. I know it's been a while, it's been about a year since my last episode, but as you can see, I upgraded to a new studio. I'm wearing a suit now. I am a multi-billionaire. And uh, you know, now I got a new guest. Uh, the first one in about a year, Dan Rothenberg. Thanks for joining me, Dan. You're welcome. Good to be here, Michael. Yep, definitely. Uh, so I know you from the Helium Comedy Club. We met last summer. During a comedy competition, we kind of became friends. And, uh, you know, I thought I'd, it would be a great time to interview you because you're a very interesting person because you had the dynamic of being a stand-up comedian as well as a therapist, which most comics usually need. So yeah. I thought it was a very interesting uh, kind of combination. And I wanted to just kind of dive into your background in comedy, how it got started, as well as you know, how you're using comedy in therapy. And if you can just give us a little bit of background on how you got started and all that stuff. Okay. Uh, how I got started as a comedian, we're dating back. This is, a, Michael, a time that it's, it's spoken of in, um, it's undocumented. It was a time in the late 90s. There were no phones, no, everything was not videoed. And comedy was dead. So <laughs> it's completely dead. We were up there. Um, our shirts were tucked in back then. Mm-hmm. And we were performing to what, what, whoever. This was in San Francisco. I moved there from Michigan. Um, I'll back up to that for a second, actually. I uh, graduated in 95 um, from college in Michigan. I moved up to san francisco to take like a gap year that would be the kids today a gap year is before college our our gap years were after college i'm a gen xer mm-hmm. and so i was gonna sort of go to san francisco live with my friends before um i decided on maybe grad school i was planning at that point to go into social work and or therapy oh you were before you became a comedian uh, okay uh, all so right. I, I always wanted to do comedy. I was, you hear this from a lot of comedians. I was, you know, I listened to, when I was young, the tapes were, for me, it was uh, Let's Get Small with uh, Steve Martin, Eddie Murphy Delirious, Eddie Murphy Comedian. I listened to those constantly. I did a couple of sets when I was in college. Um, I think I was kind of regarded as funny. The guy that people said, you know, you should try stand up. And I always really wanted to do it. Did you do the sets? Sorry to interrupt you. Did you do the sets like on a college campus or you, or you did it in a club in the city with my college friends that came and saw you? Both. I did a couple at the, you know, at the, whatever, at the coffee bar on campus. Uh Those went okay. I did one 
in a in a bar that had an open mic for music. Yeah. Um, How did that go? It went well, the first time. <laughs> I went up the first time. Uh-huh. Went up the second time. I remember, you know, when you when you start as a comedian, there's a lot at stake. You really care. Um, mm-hmm. It's like kind of do or die up there. And the second time, these guys were playing pool and started to heckle me, and I kind of I fell apart and bailed. The only time you let the stage happened to me. Yeah, I was on the stage, and I think I said something like, <laughs> "Well, I don't think this is going to work out," and I ran for my car. <laughs> I think everyone's had that feeling. There. Yeah, yeah just, everyone's had that feeling as a comedian, you know. Yeah, I don't even remember. I think I blocked out the trauma of that. The, mm-hmm what that felt like and to this day bad set it still takes me a while to regain eye contact with the world (laughs) yeah it's rough and yeah me bad set is not necessarily not getting laughs it's when you crawl inside yourself and die yeah yeah and succumb the the failure of the moment like for me a bad set isn't even if i got booed it's if i get no reaction at all or if i like screw up my own wording and i'm Mm -hmm. angry at myself because i screwed up the joke and they don't get it because it's my fault versus they don't Mm -hmm. get it even though i did it right do you ever have that feeling yes yes i think one way or the other when you're up here instead of in the moment, mm-hmm. comedy gets ugly. It does, and it's, yeah. it's 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 tough. And I heard it described. There was a one of the many documentaries described eating it on stage, and this is what really clicked with me. When you eat it on stage, you fall and you keep falling mm-hmm. long after the set is done, and the only way you can get back up is to redeem it and do another set and. And, it really is, yeah, to get your confidence back. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I think after that, I maybe, I don't know if in my head I quit and said, I'm not doing that again. Moved to San Francisco with my friends in 95. And so I was going to kind of go into social work and I got a job in HIV research. Oh. Actually, at an exciting time in San Francisco. Um, at a, at, at the time where HIV was starting to, they had found the cocktail where things were beginning to move toward, um, not being a death sentence. Right. And I decided to, I decided to start doing comedy. Um, I just kind of had a, actually, sorry, lived in Portland before I went to San Francisco. I spent the summer with my best friend in Portland. And he encouraged me to do it. So why did you move to Portland in the first place from Michigan? Um, because my best friend, Mick, was going to Lewis and Clark. Oh, okay. Uh, college. And so, so actually Portland. Him. Yeah. So I just, was, I knew I was going to join my friends in San Francisco in September. And I got to, and I went to Portland for the summer. And... My first set was at the Gresham Inn. Is that a hotel? Uh, Gresham Inn. I don't know. It it was yeah. It was, it was a bar. Maybe a there bar, was a hotel. 
on top of it or something. And uh, that, yeah, that's where I started. I was, you know, like really green and had some okay sets, had some so what bad was it, sets. What was it like then? Were there, because right now the comedy community is really booming now. Comedy's right. yeah, like huge. It's cool again. It's dangerous. People are getting attacked on stage, obviously like yeah. Dave Chappelle, right? Um, right? You know, it's like kind of being a rock star now if you're Kevin Hart. But yes. back then, like you said, comedy was kind of dying. Like it was big in the yes. 80s, right? That was the last boom. And then it went downhill in the 90s and kind of started slowly climbing back up through the 2000s to hit now, right? So were, at, first off, were there many even clubs? Like, was Helium wasn't even a brand, right? The Helium Comedy Club? That wasn't even a thing then. And so I didn't. Um, I started really at the death of it. <laughs> okay. So. For those of you listening that might be a little on the young side, yes, there was a boom in the 80s and 90s. The boom was marked by things like Evening at the Improv. There was uh, cable television, boomed it. Caroline's Comedy Hour, Evening at the Improv, that was on A&E, um, mm. MTV, Stand Up, blah, blah. There's a million of them. And just for laughs, too, right? Yes, sure. There was the Comedy was, Festival just for laughs. That wasn't on TV, though, right? Was it a distant person at that time? I oh, think no. it was just in person. Okay. Um, if, to the average person, and this was to 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 overgeneralize it. Um, comedy was very. It was very. It, they say it just got oversaturated, and the quality. Um, anyone could be a comedian. Dentist was off on the weekend, getting good money to host club because it was booming and they were selling drinks at the end of the day it was just a lot of drinks sold you could pay comedians cheaply mm -hmm. and um, i heard a lot there, about there that a lot of how comics were like just paid like nothing for years like kind of slave labor you know that's and they, the that's clubs when made i started yeah that's when you started okay yeah yeah and that's uh something we will get to just the that culture of comedy. We have nothing. Comedians, we got we we have no union. <laughs> we we have um the only benefit, you know, no dental, no the only I heard Tom Rhodes said this. <laughs> the only benefit a comedian gets is free drinks. Yeah. That's, that's about it. To drown your sorrows after a bad set, pretty much. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> so you go in and say, fuck, I gotta see a uh I gotta see a dentist. My tooth hurts. And the bartender would be like you want a shot that's your dental plan <laughs> yeah, that's, that's about it you're right still yeah. like that yeah huh? that's never changed that's never changed because co comedians are very you know just independent people and thinkers right and we there is really no union besides like uh bill burr recently started the uh oh it's called all things comedy atc mm -hmm. and it's not really like a union for rights or anything but just to, you know, even him, he's like, it's a very rough put together kind of thing for comedians to come together and support each other for making specials and kind of like a little network, but still there's not much. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I didn't realize, like I moved to, so I moved to San Francisco. My home clubs were the Punchline and Cobbs, which are the major clubs there. Right when I moved there, the punchline had three 
four and it went to two, like in the first two weeks of my comedy, everything was closing down because Mm -hmm. this boom that got oversaturated. When you think of the eighties comic, it's all Seinfeld. I, I, I like Seinfeld, but it's Mm -hmm. a dude, uh, airline jokes, right? All of the, the airline jokes, um, Mm -hmm. uh, airline driving. It got very hacky. Mm-hmm. And it was almost like the world just said, okay, enough of that. Everything closed down. I started. And so I, I actually started at a very specific challenging time after the boom and before the internet. Mm-hmm. Right. So I was being mentored by people that didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> Because, you know, the, the business model then was, you know, just do a lot of coke and travel around and get all the gigs you can. There was no plan because you didn't, mm-hmm. in any case, you didn't need a plan um, because there was a lot of work. The work dried up. I didn't care because you're like, this is a long shot anyway. If you love comedy, you're just going to do it whenever you're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I was in San Francisco at a time where it was a it was very it was still very competitive for very few slots and there was not a lot of money to be made and you were just trying to get on for free at the showcases and work your way get weeks like we do at helium you want to get a week at the club right and uh, things were really dead so i i opened for if you can think of a headliner over 50 i opened for him um, really yeah. Do you ever open for um, Louis C.K.? Yes. Many. Uh, really? Three or four times. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. It was back then. It, w- it was awesome. He it was pre Pootie Tang. He was, mm. he was one of many brilliant headliners putting zero butts in seats. And maybe, you know, making. F- maybe five grand for the week, which wasn't bad. It was more than he was yeah. bringing in. It was like, uh, so I, yeah, I opened for, um, CK, Joe Rogan, Dave Chappelle. Really? It's so cool. It was cool. It was, it, but it was just a big artistic boom that no one mm-hmm. knew about. Did you ever like talk to Joe Rogan at all? He's one of my favorites. Yeah, yes. Uh, Joe Rogan told me to do, remember by, he told me to do jujitsu. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Of course. Me, yeah. This was during his Fear Factor tenure. Uh-huh, yeah. But he was not even that known, I think, for the, for the martial arts. No, he was kind of doing USC commentary on the side, I think, but he uh, wasn't even that known for it. Yeah, I think he was just kind of getting into it still and um yeah fear factor like that was kind of on the rise because he started uh-huh. fear he started his podcast i think towards the end of fear factor um uh-huh. i think but that kind of gave him a boost because he got known from that and then everything else took yeah. off but yeah that's awesome was yeah. he was he still talking about like dmt and was he doing and, and you know all that stuff what does dmt stand for i'm sorry uh oh, the drug um we use it when we're dreaming it's a hallucinogen Duh. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I forget how to pronounce it. I don't remember that. He just kept saying to me, "Jujitsu, dude, I'd be doing it right now." He kept saying that. I want to do it now. 
<laughs> That's how much I love it. Yep. yep. You don't like that. Yeah. So, yeah. So we, I got a chance to, yeah, open for all these comedians who are going to kind of change the world. And that was really cool. And, you know, it's funny as a comedian, you can, you can go a long way without getting anywhere. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you can, I, I rode in a lot of limos and I, I've performed for thousands of people. And, um, what I was unable to do is, um, put it together and kind of have a plan. What all of you guys are doing now was an unknown. Mm-hmm. We were waiting for the gatekeepers to, give us a show or give us a crappy. Yeah. And I heard there was a lot of shitty gatekeepers. That's what I heard. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So I, I, um, what, what you did back then was you tried to work as many clubs as you could. I went all over the country. I went to Europe too, doing clubs and you tried to avoid the one nighters, which is, you know, comedy night at at the ha ha hut or the, the the, the mm-hmm. clam house or wherever place that was having comedy that shouldn't even be having comedy. Mm-hmm. So um, my first paid gig was in Vancouver, Washington, at uh, La something. It's Mexican food. Shit, I'm losing it. I'm fifty. It's La okay. Cocina. No, it's not La Cocina, but it was a uh, Vancouver, Washington. Um, you know, I, I remember the headliner there, Jan Barrett. Who knows? I haven't heard about her in a long time. Uh-huh. Her and another guy. And I remember thinking, you know, to me, these were rock stars. Right. When you, when you begin, you're, you're working with someone who could put together 20 minutes. And she got a free fried ice cream in the beginning. <laughs> I'm like, man. Comedians, I find, are so happy just for these smallest rewards. We really, yes. you know. Just because we're so used to not getting anything. And when yes. we get something little, we're, we're just like, oh, we're worthy of this, you know? Yeah. Oh, I had, there was so many gigs. Um, my friend Tony from San Francisco, you go there, they feed you. It's so nice. You get a bowl of soup. Mm. Um, and, and then you forget about the money because you're getting the simple little things. Yes. But then you're like, oh, I'm only getting paid this small amount of money. Like the important part. And the good yeah. comedian, you know, so I, um, so I, I had it great in San Francisco. That was, you know, I'm, so I'm 50. So I'm looking back on life and the midlife crisis. And I look back in my twenties in San Francisco, that was a golden era for me to be kind of what, uh, to be living in a town in the artistic community, getting the sets we could get, um, the open, for the most part, when you live somewhere, you're, you're the, the, the locals open. Mm-hmm. Then you eventually feature back when I started, you opened. Then when you were featuring, it was time to go. It was time to go to LA. Cause now you're, you don't oh, want to yeah. lose out. You don't want to just be here forever. Right. And I mean, I don't know if you've heard of the openers were, uh, when I started were Arch Barker. I don't know if you heard of her, him, uh, no. Sabrina Matthews, Vernon Chapman, who produced Louis' show, um, and it was a, it was a lot of good comedians. And I worked, had that hunger to get out there every night, and I worked my way up 
to feature at Cobb's and the Punchline. And I was the house MC at Cobb's, which was considered an honor back then. And so I was, you know, you're just opening for all these amazing comedians. Mm -hmm. Again, Louis C.K. was, I mean, you know, he was doing his bits of, I have a peach. It was just sort of absurdist. <laughs> They're really silly. I go back and I'll watch those. I'm like, wow, he's really transformed a lot of his material because he did used to be absurdist. And now he's more about like philosophy and, you know, just the curve of a comedian, kind of like how Carlin kind of went more and more into philosophy. Louis does kind of the same thing. Yeah. Um, and I even remember what what I think few comedians do, and some that are coming to mind, Louis C.K. certainly did this. Um, uh, do you know who? I remember uh, seeing Greg Barrett do this. Um, when comedians go from good to great, Mm-hmm. is is when it just clicks, kind of amazing right. because most people don't yeah we have a person who's already known being a great comedian and they something just pow right, right. um like i find that and, a lot of comedians you know they're good at telling jokes and weaving jokes into stories but i think that when you can make a person go home with like in comedy, I think if you're you're doing a good job, if you know they remember the laughter, right? But if they can go home with an idea and still be able huh. to remember the idea because of the laughter that seeped in that idea, like for me, why I got into comedy was I wanted to use it as a tool to eventually get uh, philo- philosophical ideas into people's brain, right? Especially as huh. I get more uh, wise as I get older, and because as you know, in therapy, I'm sure that uh, comedy lowers people's defenses. And then once you do that, you can get all these other new ideas and experiences into their brain and possibilities. So personally, that's why it it always attracted me. Yeah, definitely. And I was, I was attracted to doing autobiographical stuff and talking about my mom and talking about the more it was close to me and you could get a big laugh. I mean, it's a little cliche, but the more it validated me, And yeah, made made me feel like I, I yeah I was doing something something meaningful. Right. Same here. And then I went to L.A. and um I got some breaks and I did okay, but I was not. I wasn't as good at playing the game, and I got kind of burnt out, and I never did what I was told, which I should have. By people who were successful in San Francisco, who I brought up, um, Al Madrigal, for instance, oh. mm-hmm. um, W. Kamau Bell. What was their advice um, to you? Overall, go to the improv and hang out when you're not performing and be a part of the community. Mm-hmm. And, and do you not feel comfortable around like all, all other comedians? Was it too much or? Why did you not yeah. um, want to? Because somehow my self-esteem got to me. I, I felt like I didn't belong, and they don't know me anyway. And mm-hmm. somehow the hunger I had, the hunger I had in San Francisco to show up, didn't quite follow me to L.A. And I just, um, 
yeah, I kind of had a crisis of confidence stand up wise. Mm-hmm. I feel that too and, sometimes, just not, you know, I'm not sure if my style fits in with other people. And I don't know, like, did you have a feeling of you don't want to bug other people? Like, if they like you, they'll come to you and you don't want to push yourself onto others. At least how, that's how I kind of feel. So I'm getting better at it, yeah. you know, because yeah. I'm realizing that not everyone's like mean, you know, huh. I've dealt with like a lot of mean people in my life. Right. So I'm trying to realize, oh, there's good people out there and yes. they're not, they're, they're actually welcoming to new experiences and new people, huh. you know. Definitely. There are very cool people out there who will want to embrace you and won't be threatened by you and want to see you do well. Mm. It sort of takes the putting yourself out there. And for some reason, I was comfortable in San Francisco. And looking back, I waded through a lot of bitter people that didn't want you to succeed. I just sort mm. of persevered through it. Um, in, in LA, I lost a little of my mojo in terms of knowing who I was on stage. Mm-hmm. It was something, and that can happen to, I don't know if it officially happened to me, but comedians can kind of lose it. Yeah. A lot and, of comedians lose it. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. just kind of lose yeah. it. Yeah. So, yeah. And so I, I changed to doing one person shows. So I started to do theater stuff. and then. Um, I decided to go back to grad school and become a therapist and work with kids and do what I was going to do. Cause I was just, first of all, we wanted to have a kid and I was just burnt out. I was just, I've always, my big problem, and I'm hoping now that this is the end of this problem. <laughs> the big problem in life is momentum. One thing leading to another. I would I have, uh, I've done really awesome things <laughs> and then it's over. Right. It's hard to and, keep it going. Yeah. 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 Uh, somehow. Um, so I, uh, yeah, so we did that in the process of that. I lost the management. It wasn't working out so well. Mm. Um, I, in the meantime, I got to do live at Gotham on comedy central. That was one of the little standup shows. And, uh, and I was just like, um, you know what? I want to go back and have a normal life. I want to, I want an income and mm-hmm. it was really done. A little more security, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I needed to do at the time. Now coming to the present, now I am very glad to be doing what I'm doing. I wouldn't trade anything, but I'm, I'm a babbling I'm a comedian without a stage. I'm walking around thinking about bits uh-huh. <laughs> and not doing them. My son, literally, my son, I, I'll be like talking to myself. My 12 year old son will be like, comedy? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> like, once you're a comedian, it doesn't ever really leave you once you can form your thoughts into bits, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, the, I'm the same way. I'm always writing stuff down no matter what. Even if I won't use it, oh, I know it'll. Like at least lead me to another thing, or sometimes it works both ways too. I'll write down something funny and it'll lead me to something meaningful, and I'll write like mm-hmm. a whole essay piece about that, or I'll write something meaningful and then I'll see the comedy in that, and then I'll write some mm-hmm. jokes about it or a bit about it. And uh, once you get that in you, 
it is addicting to get out your thoughts. And, you know, even if you don't write them down, it's just you're always thinking right. in, that, in that process. And, you know, when you're making someone laugh, that's addicting too. It's a drug to make other people huh. happy. So, yeah, I, I get what you mean there. It is. So, it is. And it, so how ahead. long, um, I want to ask you, how long did you practice and be in comedy and then start uh, therapy for it? Like, what's the uh, comparison years was? Um, I did comedy for 15 years. Okay. And then I, uh, I did, which is, which was not easy. Just decided to just, just one idiot, just back to school. Right. And you know, I, I look back and go, wow, that was quite, <laughs> it was an undertaking. It's not, it's one thing to shift laterally. It is really like the metaphor I think of to just change your life. Yeah. Is you're going you're going a hundred miles an hour this way, and now you wanna change you wanna cut the wheel this way, but you're still moving. You're still mm-hmm. mm. and Were so, you telling jokes and doing bits like in grad school, like do in therapy class, like were you always still getting that out energy out there? No, I was. I was doing. Still in that train of thought. Yeah, I was doing. When I look back, I've always done it, and I always kind of have to do it on some level. So, at yeah, at grad school, I was doing. Uh, they had the lunch and learn. I turned it into the lunch and laugh. Did impressions of the professors. Did jokes about being in social work school. Mm-hmm. Went back and did them after. I have done all the stage time I can. Always the one thing. The thing that limits my stage time now is that, again, I'm not willing to go out away from my wife and kid and kind of hang and just the mm-hmm. time. It really takes a lot of time. Which is understandable. You know, I think yeah, so. when you have a family, it's understandable. Yeah. 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 But, yeah, so I'm a comedian at heart. So I, for instance, I have a, this is my beautiful office here where I see clients. Mm-hmm. And um, my, I have a private practice. I work with teenagers and young adults. I could be just happy with this, but instead I'm transitioning into therapist and life coach and podcaster because I want to do what you're doing. I want something that gets that momentum and gets me funny. Right. Has me talking like this. I just, this is all I want to do with life. And I found that when you're doing podcasting, a lot of the stuff that you, you know, subjects that come up, like when I'm editing my shows and stuff and going back through it, uh-huh. like I, I end up doing bits on the podcast just through conversation. Like, oh, I just wrote a bunch of stuff already for stage and you're doing two uh-huh. things at once, you know, because you know how right. people will say they write on stage. Now you can write on podcasts essentially, which is super helpful as well. Mm-hmm. So talking about momentum, it keeps all those things flowing together idea wise, you know? Yeah. So it is helpful to do both. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, I need a, right. I need an outlet. And, um, and so that's why I've got, uh, what did I say is my parenting podcast. And, you know, it's funny. I, um, as you know, it just got released. Yes. (laughs) And I mean, I've been doing, I think I've been working on it maybe for a year. I'm not sure. It's been a while. 
it takes people don't know this. It takes a while to set up and start and launch a podcast. Yes. There is a lot, a lot to it. Yeah. It's a lot of work. And it's interesting how in that time I feel like I've gotten better at it. And my relationship with the, my relationship with an audience that didn't exist has gotten better. Cause you mm-hmm. gotta make I made six episodes before it was launched. Right. Right. And so I'm just yeah, I just want to see it through. I feel like I'm finally like um see this all the way through and do a lot of episodes and I'm excited. Um for instance, I did one, I've done two with comedians. And just to specify, so this podcast is the focus is not just parenting, but connecting with your teenagers and young adults. Mhm which is really challenging. And I've noticed as a therapist and now life coach um, with teenagers and young adults, I have to say, I've taken an interest in working with parents and most of them don't want to hear it. I bet. I bet. I I know some parents uh, that are definitely like that and really... Um, what percentage of your clients have a hard time taking responsibility for actually being a parent? Just out um, of curiosity. Like they don't necessarily, I've had some personal experiences with this talking to people around me, let's say, and some admit that like, yeah, I wasn't really ready to be a parent. Mm-hmm. And that's why I like left my son or daughter because I just I couldn't handle the responsibility, and now that they're older, they feel that they've changed a little and kind of regret it. But they understand that now huh. they're a different person. Like, yeah. do you think some parents just aren't ready to be parents, and that the teenagers kind of suffer because of that and develop issues, and it's a cycle? And sure, yeah, I mean that can be that that can definitely happen, and. Um, and I would say the majority of what I notice is probably 80% of the parents I either work with directly or my, maybe my clients have parents there as we all do, um, is I think we tend to view parenting as a situation uh, rather than something, something that you do that takes a little planning. Mm-hmm. That takes a little strategy that requires our own um, growth. I think parenting is the ultimate test of one's ability to learn and grow about ourselves. Mm-hmm. What often happens is we take what we got from our parents and we bring it to our kid. Right. And so maybe. Uh, maybe our parents raised us from anxiety and we take that anxiety and we raise our, our kids. And what I mean by, by that is, um, um, worrying, worry about my kid, worry about my kid having good grades. Right. Mm-hmm. And then maybe I helicopter over him and tr- make sure he gets his assignments in. Mm. So there's a, there's an example of parenting which 
Um, and by the way, if it works, it works. You'll know if it works. If your kid wants to talk to you, if your kid comes to you for support and advice, you're good. Whatever works. Now, often what happens is kids push their parents away and they feel like they're over-lectured and, and going into their room and they're going on their phone and they're basically saying, just leave me alone. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times that's coming from a place of well-intention, but kind of controlling anxious parenting, mm-hmm. which we don't always recognize is because we see it. that seems like a, it seems reasonable, right? You got to get good grades to be successful. I'm going to get on your ass. But at the same time, teenagers are developmentally at a point where they need independence and autonomy. And they're testing ideas, right? Uh, they're yes. testing the limits of what they can get away with and just poking and prodding at, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try that. And that goes through you know, pretty much your 20s, right? Like from teenager yeah. to 20s, like you're just trying new things in life to see what you like to start you know, right. establishing routines and patterns. And uh, I've seen that a lot of parents try and control their children and put them in a box. And that's, like, yeah. I think, the worst thing you can do to a child instead of being like, Okay, try this, make mistakes, learn from it, see what you like, right. and keep trying to grow as a person. And I feel that a lot of parents, they chose to stop growing as a person at a certain age, mm-hmm. and they try and stop their child from doing that, which is, I think, the complete wrong absolutely. thing to do. Yeah. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And um, that comes in, so a good example of that is, for instance, well, let's take my parents, for instance, <laughs> um, who good parents, because the, the definition of a good parent, by the way, is someone who's around and trying. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, it's, it's important to keep that in mind. If you're there, you're a good parent. The rest is just trying to do the best you can. That being said, my parents um, are very middle-class professionals. My dad taught at a community college. My mom taught at a school, you know, public school, right? Very much job people. Get a job, get some security, and that's it. Mm -hmm. Um, Somehow, I don't know how I got it into my head, I became a alcoholic, comedian, entrepreneur, totally bored with the idea job mm-hmm. i'm just that my i just can't do it right right well a lot of free thinkers ch- can't you know that's just not the way you're made like a comedian right do you think is just a different breed of person that goes mm-hmm. against the grain always and does not like yes. to be controlled and then they act out erratically yes. until they get the freedom they want right yeah yeah yes I, absolutely it's it's like i could um so not to no fault of their own. Um, it was hard. It's been hard in my adulthood from that for them to parent certain aspects of me because they don't know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Don't they think I'm crazy? They think I'm setting myself up for failure. They think, um, and so at times their efforts to parent me has been received by me as controlling and product of their anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so my podcast is, and this is in the, I think the greatest thing a parent can do is just have an awareness of this. Just try to have an awareness. Your kid is a different individual than you and might do it differently than you. And let them come to you with problems instead of telling them they're going to have problems. Right. Let them live their life and report back to you. Then they might talk to you as opposed to remind them, well, that's, I don't know, you can do what you want, but that's not a really good idea. That's hard. That's this. Steve Martin, many, my heroes have said, my greatest, uh, my greatest strength at the time was naivete. I didn't know I couldn't do it. I Mm. didn't. And we never want to squash that out of kids. The willingness to try. Yes. Right. If yes, absolutely. And that's, so my, my podcast is for parents that are kind of on that wavelength that maybe we're going to use parent view and look at our kids' grades. We're going to try not to. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's try not to let's back up. Let's let them develop and be there for them instead of just being there with them. you notice is a little bit what the norm of parenting is to me when my kid is 17 i hope i'm not i don't know of every assignment he he has to turn in right yeah well when you say it's good to establish a certain sense of uh like just responsibility of core values so that you mm-hmm. actually don't have to check in on them because there's a trust there of they have now their best interest at heart. So they're going mm-hmm. to do the things that they value. And if they value going into a career in a certain field, they'll work hard at those certain right. things in science or math or whatever it is. Or they're taking a lot of drama classes because they like the arts or comedy or mm-hmm. whatever it is, right? Um, mm-hmm. If you just establish that early in a certain pattern of uh, just a willingness to achieve your goals, they'll do it on their own. You don't have to baby them right like yes. uh, back in the old days kids would work for their parents in stores and stuff and this core value of a work ethic and mm-hmm. you know maybe you don't need that now of just like taking over the family business but just having a work ethic of following your dreams you know some yes some core value of this is what you love you should work towards it and start mm-hmm. almost having a a specialization earlier in life then later uh-huh. in life in college, like, okay, you're obviously keen to this certain thing. Like I knew when I was three that I wanted mm-hmm. to be in stand-up comedy. Like I just, mm-hmm. I just knew I've never yeah. not known that I didn't want right. to be a comedian or a public speaker or any of that stuff, which is weird because I did a personality test recently and I'm, I guess the, uh, you know, the, uh, 16 personality types of Myers-Briggs, uh, uh thing. Yeah. So I found out that I'm an INFJ male which is 0.5% of the population. And I'm an introvert. And I was like, huh, interesting. Uh I guess I do, I guess most comedians are introverts, but we do extroverted things. But I was just surprised to hear that. Um, And I guess it it kind of made me have a realization of, oh, maybe that's why I've never really related to people on top of the disabilities and stuff is just my personality has been 
different. I've always known what I wanted to do. And a lot of people kind of do have to try different things to get there, but I've always known. Mm-hmm. You know, did, did you always know what you want to do? Like, did you know that you wanted to go into comedy or have a sense from a young age? Or did from, you have from, to bounce From around? a fantasy standpoint, yeah, I, I fit. Yes and no. I fit the description of a comedian in that <clears throat> we always talk about how we were just, I was watching The Tonight Show to see the comedian. I was listening to the albums a million times. Mm-hmm. I, all of that. I don't think I knew it was possible, though. I've heard a lot of comedians, uh, early on comedians, say they didn't know it was possible, but they did the yeah. same thing. They're always watching and were attracted to comedy. They're like, I, can, I don't know if I can actually ever do that. I didn't know it was right. attainable. Um, now it's different because it's so prolific, you know, everywhere. Yeah. But, so, but that, to me, that tells me that you always did have the sense and probably knew that you wanted to go into it. It just wasn't established, so you couldn't say, I can do that. But you did do it. So. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Though I didn't, I didn't know I'd be doing it. I didn't know I'd be doing it after college. But I was definitely, excuse me, I was definitely drawn to it. But at the same time, I was not in theater. I was not in performing. Um, no. I had a part of me that was very nervous. I think we all have that, though. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, uh, um, I like what you said about, I think comedians are introverts and comedians are often shy, which sounds ironic, but it makes sense to me because when you're shy, um, comedy gives you the chance to take the microphone and now everyone has to listen <laughs> like the, like you don't want to start talking unless you have everyone's attention to listen i yeah, agree with that so it's fear yeah, 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 it's yeah. fear that gets us going that's not courage the fear of being ignored yeah fear of to this day i cannot jump into a conversation i feel like i'm mm-hmm. middle school yeah i, I <laughs> me too it yeah. terrifies me yeah, give yeah, me yeah. the microphone and officially announce now listen to this guy uh i'm comfortable so there's a shyness and also you get to use comedy we talked about earlier you use comedy to get your ideas out and lower their defenses so they're willing Mm -hmm. to listen to your ideas you know right that might be a layer on top of it as well yes so how do you use so here's a question um what do you think the purpose of comedy is in life as a tool in therapy as well as philosophically and the greater culture of society. Okay. Um, in therapy, it's, it's subtle. Um, my comedy comes out with my clients. It's more of a subtle rapport that, um, is, how can I put this? It starts with nonverbals, and then depending on who I'm working with, it becomes a little funny. Well, you got to not... feel it out, right? You got to feel them. Yeah. Feel out the the situation for every case. Right. So the metaphors I use might be kind of funny or kind of ironic, but I'm not telling jokes, which can be right, very right. bad for therapy. <laughs> so a lot of people that would be yeah. funny if they because they're they're forced to listen out, and you're just doing a set. You know, yes. About the, I cannot uh, cannot take their material, make it my material. Nothing, nothing yeah. like that. Would it ever be a good exercise for them 
to actually write jokes about each other and tell them to each other in a playful way to like break down barriers. Have you ever done, is there any exercise like that that exists? Who, right, when you say about each other, who's the Like if you had like a family for therapy that came in, right? Okay. What if you had like the kids write jokes, even if they're not that good, like Uh try and write jokes about the parents and the parents write jokes about their kids and they try and (laughs) bond through comedy. Is that like an exercise that exists or anything that's taught? Not not that I know of, but I would do that if it came to mind. I'm always looking for, so yeah, I mean, if, if a... If a family came in and part of their culture, their communication was to tell jokes or they did comedy, that that would, whatever loosens things up and takes things from, um, from anger into acceptance. Yeah. I've done, Mm -hmm. um, role plays with clients that they turn funny. They just get Mm -hmm. funny and they, they help. They help manage anger. Um, philosophically, um, humor is psychological flexibility. Even beyond getting a laugh, if I'm taking something humorously, I am flexible, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say you, um, you bring me a situation is difficult right one one of the one of the most difficult things in life is to adjust right to get difficult news Mm -hmm. and i might not be telling a joke but it's just a certain sensibility of you know to put it into words like okay like to set you at ease in a new tense situation to like have a new normal to ease you into a new normal, right? Yes. People that carry humor around tend to be tend to be flexible as opposed to think about humorless. Humorless people miserable. Yeah. Miserable. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. what that is. Um and and that's another thing. Maybe it's a little bit of a change of a subject that I that I try to put forward when in my podcast and when it comes to parenting is there's nothing in my opinion there's no greater accomplishment a child could have than the ability to adjust and the ability to um bounce back psychological Mm -hmm. flexibility the ability to um resilience mature what's that resilience yes Mm. and to me that is worth more than having a four point zillion grade point average and going to um yeah whatever into harvard and this and that and going at all full speed ahead hitting a wall pressure (laughs) and i'm not knocking excellence not at the expense of um, yeah, being able to adjust because our ability, our resiliency is going down. Yeah. I would agree Kids are that. getting more anxious. Kids are getting more black and white thinking. Kids are getting more. Well, there's um, more voids of avoidance, right? I guess that's a void. The, the word void in avoidance is you delve deep into a void uh, to, to uh, drown out 
what is really meaningful to you. I always talk about how I feel my generation, for those of you who don't know who are new to the podcast, I'm 24. I know I look like I'm mm-hmm. in my 40s, a lot of people think. But um, I, get, I would get that in high school that people think I'm in my 40s all the time. People thought I was a teacher when they were a new student. You could go either um, way. I could go either way. Some people, no, you, you look young and old yeah. at the same time. You look like a really young person. <laughs> one of these people that could buy beer forever. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, yeah. I never, I still have never gone carded. Not once. Never gone no, carded. Ever. It's just not. Yeah. I used to have these thick etiquette. bulletproof glasses because I used to be legally blind. So everyone was just, you know, I look like an older guy. I just, yeah. Um, yeah I want to so, see the reality show with you in that suit. <laughs> if you if you can't go anywhere you want <laughs> it is true like i when i when i start started to like dress better and stuff um could i because i could actually see the clothing i was putting on you know huh? like um people people would treat me differently if i was a person in a wheelchair who you know dressed just normally or you know subpar or whatever just kind of eh, versus like dressing like this going around in a wheelchair they're like mm-hmm. oh he's they would go from avoiding me to like looking at me and being their interest is peaked and they're actually not scared of me anymore because I look like I'm put together. So it's not like my friend Alan in seventh grade, right? Uh, at the front at the time, he wasn't my friend, but he's like, he didn't want to approach me because he told me years down the line, he's like, Michael, I didn't want to get near you because I thought you were going to drool on me. That's what <laughs> he told me. And then he saw one day that I started making all these people laugh in a circle. And he's like, oh, he's making people laugh. How's he doing that? You know, he thought I wasn't like all there or something. So that's how I always, so to, going back to resilience and stuff is I never stopped trying to change the way people thought, inter- introduce new ideas. If people were scared of me, I would approach mm-hmm. them, set them at ease with humor. And that's how I gained friends. And um, also going back into avoidance, um, like I, a lot of my generation, I think, are scared of their potential. And they don't, they don't want to have the realization of the work it will take to get somewhere, you know. And because of the things I've been through, or it's just my character, I don't know. I've always been the guy that's been like, you know, I know it's going to take a lot of work, but I'm willing to take the risk. And yeah. it could be because I've always had to take risks because I've like, I've died so many times or, you know, I've had all these surgeries huh. and stuff. And most people haven't gone through that. I've gone through that since I was a small child. Like that's my normal. Oh. And I know most kids that isn't their normal, especially now because they have oh. Netflix and video games and all this stuff. And like I tried to invite my friends at the time about a year ago to start a podcast with me and go off and do all these other projects. And they just couldn't do it. They still play 10 hours of video games a day and they huh. avoid. Like I told them, I, th- I said, you have this talent, you have this talent, you have this talent. You should work on it and not avoid your potential. You can mm-hmm. have genuine success here. And mm-hmm. they made the conscious decision to avoid it still and continuing in the path that they're on. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, I'm not going to force them. That's not my job in life, right? Mm-hmm. We all have our own paths. Um, so I thought I'll just lead by example. And down the line, if I have opportunities, I can give them to them, give the opportunities to them, and they can take mm-hmm. them or not. But you can't force people out of avoidance but i think just because there's so many opportunities to avoid potential and hard work and resilience uh-huh. that people take them more often because they're more readily available nowadays versus having that work ethic of yeah. getting things done and um 
having more human contact and relationships. A lot of it is online and it's addicting to have those relationships through gaming instead of in person mm-hmm. and then making plans to go do something else more meaningful or if you're mm-hmm. with because when you're with someone in person, you're like, hey, let's start something together. Let's do this. Let's go mm-hmm. do that. And when it's online, a lot of the time it's like, hey, let's go play this other game instead of playing the mm-hmm. real game of life. It's another fictional yes. game. When you're buying Lamborghinis in Grand Theft Auto instead of figuring mm-hmm. out how to buy a Lamborghini in real life or start a family in real life yeah. instead of starting a family in The Sims, you know? And I would, I would add to that, you're, we're always training and retraining our brain. Mm-hmm. And when neurologically, if you are... Um, if you are, you're playing Grand Theft Auto and that's your, that's more of your reality than the game of life, Mm -hmm. your brain, um, needs an update. The brain is the ultimate computer. That's the perfect term. Cause you're always having to update Grand Theft Auto and stuff for the new stuff. Yeah. But you really need to update your brain to get rid of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Your update is life. Your yeah. life. The real life. Updates yeah. This computer. Uh, and um, it's like, yeah, Grand Theft real. <laughs> yeah. The real Whatever. Grand Theft is your yeah. like mind and body, you know. Yeah. That's a real thing. So and that's why, you know, it's funny, in terms of mental health, a lot of something why does something work or not does something work for you or not? And when it comes to video games or gaming, um, it'd be one thing if if a kid if a kid sat down for three four hours, did Grand Theft Auto, and then said, "Wow, that was energizing." Now let's go. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm going to do my homework, man. That was just a great. <laughs> and first, no one does man. that. No right. one does that. They're not like I'm going to go. Why? You know light up all these people on the sidewalk go get a hooker and i'm only 12 and now i'm gonna go do my homework you know they're gonna stay with the hooker right. and shooting everything and like yes. you know yeah not just because it's it's such a tantalizing it's a distraction but because you're in someone else's flow mm-hmm. so the person that created that game isn't doing it <laughs> they're probably uh-huh. not playing yeah that's their creativity we need our own creativity our own life to update the computer to be okay to be so it's a long way of saying um i've barely ever done this but when you get into that um when you get into the flow of a game for eight hours um most people feel depressed and weird Mm -hmm. yep and i did it because i was disabled and i convinced myself yeah like i because i also you know i had never had rides anywhere I couldn't do anything. So I'm like, I have to do this. And uh-huh. I'm just going to, I would, I've been broadcasting since I was 14 years old on Twitch. And I thought, all right, I'll be funny, a funny gaming personality. Right. So I would just practice that. And also I was really good at the game. So I'm like, maybe I can build uh-huh. a little gaming career. Cause I was, uh, I still, I really don't know how I did it when I was, mm-hmm. cause I was blind till I was 20. I'm 24 now. Um, so <laughs> Went out for five years. I don't know if you know the Back game. Battle. You were what? I was legally blind till I was 20. Holy sh... Okay. Yeah. Do the whole it, time? Yeah. Yeah. I, I've had... Um, 
so let's see. So two open heart surgeries, three spine surgeries, uh, recently in 2018, eight eye surgeries. Then I had another heart surgery. And now I might have more eye surgeries here in January. I'll see. But yeah. Um, so I used to be completely wow. blind. Now I. For 20 years? For 20 years, yeah. And when I was a blind kid, I was the best player and founded the number one platoon in the world for Battlefield 4, which is a more realistic version of Call of Duty. And I, I don't know how I did it. <laughs> but if I by five, sound? I said, well, my friends, I had what's called, I was legally blind, not like all pitch black blind. So I could see like blurry shapes and rough uh -huh. things. You know, so I could see some things. I'd sit, no joke, one inch away from the TV. One inch away. And, uh -huh. you know, my friends would make fun of me or whatever. But the thing is, I would always be number one. They're like, how the fuck are you doing this? <laughs> like, <laughs> I just like develop these senses of how to detect huh? patterns and what to do. And um, yeah, so I was one of the best in the world. So I've climbed that mountain. And when you're on the top, it's boring. It's like, this isn't real. I, I never really wanted to huh. do it. It was just something that I had to do. And I was like, I never understood why so many people my age chose to stay inside and play games all day. Because if I could walk and if I could see, I didn't have these disabilities. I'd be out in the world trying to do things. And it was so weird to me, especially as I got older, like when I was in my later teens and 20, that the people around me were choosing to spend, you know, 10, 11, 12 hours a day inside and just play games. And I had no mm -hmm. other ambitions. And I'm like, a little over a year ago, I was like, I, I have to consciously choose to not put myself in this situation anymore. Because I've, I've outgrown it, and it's crushing me to mm -hmm. stay here. And even if it kills me, I'm not going to sit here anymore and mm -hmm. be in a virtual fake world. There's no future here. So I, I stopped. I stopped all That's my videos. That's an amazing games. story, Michael. And so, yeah, so you, you, you learned the value of the real life. Yeah, I did learn the value of real life and to put down the game, build your own life. And down the line, if I want to play some games for an hour or two with my kids uh -huh. in the future or something, there's a time and yeah. place for it, but not every day for 10 hours. Like uh -huh. when, you're, when you hit 20 at least, you need to have a hard realization of time to get things done, not time to yes. pretend. Like make-believe time right. is over. Time to get things right. going. And if you're the, for anyone listening out there who is you know, in my age range, if your friends are still like, Hey, let's game tonight and play Call of Duty for, you know, till five in the morning. You have <laughs> to tell yourself, like, either I'm going to pick having a real life, right? Uh -huh. And I have to cut off some friends or not even cut them off. Just tell them I'm doing this. They can follow you or not. You need to do that if you want a real life. Otherwise, you're mm -hmm. headed nowhere. It's just the truth. Everyone yeah. has to have that realization. And it's hard to get out of that void of avoidance because uh, uh -huh. it's so easy to stay trapped in it when your whole life and friend group and everyone is doing right. it. And I didn't want to cut off my friends. And I didn't. I didn't. I said, my phone is always open. You can call me anytime. Let's do something, you know? And huh. no one ever called me, not once. Wow. Except my friend Ryan, who's my co-host on my other podcast, huh. podcast, the comedy one. But no one ever called me. And I was like, huh. So I learned that there's different kinds of friendships. There's situational Definitely. friendships and there's Definitely. friendships you find within, like, we're kind of, I would say we're friends, right? We found each other uh -huh. through comedy. So like more of a right. work kind of thing and uh, interest-based relationships. And 
So I'm learning all these things as I'm growing up. And um, they're, they're hard realizations and hard choices to make. But uh, I wrote an essay recently about if you love something in your future that it's not really a choice. It's already within you and you need to just follow it. It's not a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, choices for things we don't love. That's, that's why I put it. Hmm. Very nice. For, you're, you're reminding me, uh, again, I'm going into life coaching with teens and young adults. Mm. And that, that's the general model is to follow your values, mm-hmm. to identify your values and move towards them. Values, values being something we'll never completely attain. You don't attain integrity completely. <laughs> or um, in my case, it would be creativity. I must go in that direction. Or there's no point. It doesn't mean, mom, if you're listening, it doesn't mean I'm not going to make a living. Okay? Mm-hmm. And get a chat. It's important too. But in order to make it all worth it, I need to be expressing myself. And that's, so those are, those are my values. And so one of the kind of models I use with the young people I work with is, once you know where your values are and the understanding that it's hard to live your values, it's not easy. And it's, it's hard, hard for people to find them too. A lot of people yes. don't know where their values are and they never got a moral scaffolding from their parents and or, and or never built it up for themselves or had to, right? Yeah. Because we grew up with all the distractions and you didn't have to. Everything's been easy and, you know, yeah. and everything's been, uh, you know, plushed. You know, there's no... Uh, hard edges in life anymore. There's no, like everything's just all cushioned for people, for most people. Uh-huh. There's still a lot of people that have very hard lives in childhoods, right? Of course. Um, but I'm saying for a lot of kids nowadays, everything's easy and you don't have to develop any mental scaffolding of principle. So they're, right. they're lost. Okay. Hey, you, like, just give me an example of that. Another, is it sort of like the millennial, everyone's a winner or... What what's easy? I, I mean, I'm saying just there there is no there's no real mountains to climb when you're young anymore, at least that I've seen. Mm-hmm. Most people just choose to stay at home, watch Netflix, right. play games. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's their really achievements good point. their achievements are the little trophy that pops up on Xbox when you uh, complete a task, right? Yeah. Like you get literally a, a little trophy. When you collect in uh, Star Wars, like little coins or something, like a certain amount, it's not it's not a real achievement that you had to right. work towards. It's just fun. It's just a fun thing, and you're not thinking about principles and building your own character right. on the inside. Like everyone's born yeah. with a character, but you got to develop it. And a lot of people yes. don't develop it anymore. At least yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. Definitely, and um. What's hard for parents is walking, finding a balance of, we all want our kids off our phone and off our devices, right? But we also have to respect you guys and understand that um, there are some things you're doing on your phone that you don't have a choice. There's some things you're doing on your phone that might be creative. There's something, so for instance, um what um what I believe you want to avoid is just kind of always uh being over your kid's shoulder telling them to get off off their phone. 
without knowing, for instance, you mentioned Twitch, right? Mm -hmm. I've worked with kids who they were gamers and then they did the Twitch thing. Now, while again, like you said, there's you want to encourage your child to live life. Twitch is different than just gaming. It is. It does take work. And I mean, yeah, I, you know, I built up a good following on there over time, and I love the interaction with people and yeah. stuff like that. But there just isn't, at least for me, I didn't really see a, a future in it because, like for YouTube, there's an algorithm that helps you. You know, new people find you and you can develop a presence huh. at least but um on twitch there really wasn't that and also like you said you're playing someone else's creation and art right you're not making your own on youtube you're actually having to make and put stuff out there versus right. on twitch it's all gaming it's it's already made and you're the one just playing it you know okay and isn't twitch the thing where you're you're playing you're and commenting and yeah, you're broadcasting yourself playing video games. So at least there's something. The point is, as parents, a part of what we have to know is we need to know enough of the difference that we can we can give some respect and give some support. And I think when we just judge the whole thing, and again, we're anxious. I see you on your phone. It annoys me. Get off the phone. And you could be talking mm -hmm. to your friend, right? Right. You could be in the middle of something. Um, and there are bonding parent. experiences. I agree with you. There are like I've I've had a lot of bonding experiences over the internet, and it is just a different time where that stuff exists. But it is addicting to people when you get to that ten hour mark of gaming. Oh, yeah, it's just oh, definitely. you know yeah. So I'm talking more of the extremes, and uh -huh. I think the extremes have been normalized. I think that's what I'm trying to yes. say. Yes. Yes. And yeah, it's like we're no, we're definitely in agreement. Um, it just comes down to when you're parenting, how do I communicate this mm -hmm. without pushing my kid away, without making him, my kid feel bad because they're just sitting around on their screen. And a good, I think a good rule of thumb is try to figure out as a parent, why am I, why am I making this rule? Right. Mm-hmm. What's what's the core value I'm coming from? And a core value is it's not just that get off that screen. It's just bad. Why is it bad? And if you can explain that to your kid, they will take it in more. So that's one thing I always noticed when I was a kid. I would I was a kid that always asked why. And when my uh -huh. mom would tell me because I said so, I'm like, what are you talking about? Because I mm -hmm. said so. And then you want to rebel because. It doesn't huh. make sense. But if you have a why, you know, yeah. then the child will follow the how. In my, exactly. Right? In my opinion. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So if I say to my kid, listen, I know you're, I know you're really into that. It is, um, balance is important. Okay. Interacting with new things in life is good for your brain. So we need to find some balance. And so you can um, do that for two hours and then... We need to find an outside activity for a couple of hours. Mm -hmm. Now I'm I'm trying to I'm not judging you, I'm parenting you. Right, that's a, that's a good way to put it. Right, because my value in that case is health. Mm -hmm. Exactly, being mental health. So when as a parent I can say, why am I doing this? Um, and if my answer is because I can't stand to see that 
it on that phone, <laughs> which is the reason. Yeah, I bet. And um, at its worst, it gets a little authoritarian. In other words, a kid hears his parents' footsteps and this. Mm-hmm. What do you want? <laughs> mm-hmm. So I know that feeling. <laughs> it's understandable you want him off the phone, but everyone deserves a reason, and everyone deserves um respect. Yes, that's a big thing. And, I think, at least in my experience, there hasn't been a lot of respect in parenting that I've seen mm-hmm. experienced. It is that yeah. authoritarian. I'm the parent, you listen to me, end of story. And I, I just think that's a bad way to parent. I think you need to share a mutual respect with your child and still maintain that authority figure. But they right. respect your authority because they respect you. It, start, yeah. it stems from you. Right. Yeah. yeah, and it gets especially challenging because, again, in the, in the teenage years, their teenagers are supposed to be autonomous. And here's something a lot of people would argue with, but I believe it. There's nothing your kid wants more than your approval. They want to impress the hell out of you. Mm-hmm. Whether they, they want, like it or not, they, yes. they want to. Yeah. Your kid, this is, what, this is the teenager's dream. A parent looks at whatever they did and they go, how did you do that? Mm-hmm. Wow! What the fuck? <laughs> Damn! Exactly. Yeah. Every kid. But here's the problem: if we're always lecturing them, they can't achieve that because now all they can do is what you told them to do. Mm-hmm. And that works when you're ten. I did it, mommy. I did it. But now we don't want mommy. I did it. We want mommy. Check that shit out. <laughs> Check that. Uh huh. Because we're growing up, man. Yeah, they're starting the process of creation. Validation for us, Mm -hmm. not controlled by you. And so that's why I hear over and over again, I've heard this countless times. I was about to do my homework. Then my mom told me to do it, and I was like, F it. (laughs) Uh huh. Definitely. Because you. You stole my thunder. You stole my mojo. You stole my motivation. Mm-hmm. Now, what's the best I can do is what you told me to do. I like and I'm, you're turning kind of Italian gangster in a, what I told you to do. <laughs> I know. That's, that's yeah. me, yeah. I'm a 50-year-old male, white male, so there's a conglomeration of movies. Uh-huh. Of of crime and gangster movies that I yeah. aspire to. A lot but of yeah. good fellas. Yeah. All right. Well, um, what uh, I think we've been going. How long we've been going here? We've been going a while. <laughs> yeah, a it's while, been a good I conversation. I have all these other uh, questions I didn't even get to, but um, let's see if there's like one more. Yeah. Let's let me ask you about um, like what's one piece of wisdom that you learned that transformed your life and one piece of wisdom that you can now share from your life that would transform someone else's. Okay. The first one, one piece of wisdom that someone uh, gave you as, as advice that Mm. transformed your life and one piece of advice 
that now you can give to someone else that would transform theirs that you learned separately. Okay. Um, Did I word that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll okay. take a piece of it. The, the one, there's been a lot of wisdom I've got. The one that pops into my head is podcast I did with Greg Barrett that you heard. Mm-hmm. When he's talk, he's talking about his career. Greg Barron is my friend. He's a comedian, and he uh, he he turned into a relationship guy because he wrote the book. He's just not that into you. Back in two thousand four or whatever. I'm curious. Have you heard of that? I had heard of it, but I have not seen the movie or okay. read the book. No. Right. So um, I remember he said, "When you're working hard, you're going in a direction." When you're following your passion, you're doing your comedy, you're doing your music, you're doing whatever it is you do, you're going in a certain direction. You don't know exactly what's going to happen, mm-hmm. but you're moving in a certain direction and opportunities will come. That's a piece of wisdom. I had never quite looked at it that way. So that, that as you're moving towards your passion, like if you follow your passion, the opportunities will show up. Yes. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Yes. Kind of like how exactly. you were saying with your parents earlier. I was thinking of like, yeah, if you just follow what's in your heart, what you love, you know, the things that you need to make a living will form themselves, you know, if yes. you just follow what you love. Yeah. With, and I would add, and you definitely hit on this, with hard work. And that's yeah. and something I talk about in my podcast a little bit. You can always encourage your kids to have a plan and to work hard. And you can always have good boundaries with them and not support them after they're 18. All of that's in place. But let them do what they want, especially mm-hmm. if, they're, if they're doing the work. So if you're doing the work and following your passion, you can have a really, really, you can have a plan without knowing exactly how it's going to turn out. Right. 100%. That's a piece of wisdom. Um, you didn't know you could be a comedian, and yet you still did all those things. Right. Like you didn't know it was possible to do that, and you did. You know, like I yeah. didn't know. Um, I talked about this on my last Walk and Roll podcast. Is that I never, like, I used to watch the movie Spider Man when I was a kid every day in the hospital. And I was like, uh-huh. you know, I always wanted to have that moment where. Do you remember the moment where Peter Parker gained his powers and he put on his uh-huh. prescription glasses and it was blurry? And he took him off and it wasn't blurry. You know? Do you remember that scene? Kind of. Is that Tobey Maguire? Or... Yeah, Tobey Maguire. The first Spider-Man uh, movie. No, I don't remember that. Okay. Well, <laughs> Spider-Man, like, gained his powers, right? And now, uh-huh. like, he used to need prescription glasses Oh, to I see. get it. He doesn't need it. Got yeah. It, got it. And he put them on and it was blurry. He's like, what? And he didn't need uh-huh. glasses anymore. Well, that's really clever. I didn't notice that. Yeah. So, <laughs> I was like, cool. one day, you know, I, that would be so cool if I could have that. And I actually had that experience where I used to have the bulletproof thick glasses. And after I went uh-huh. through those eight eye surgeries, which is a whole nother long story that's uh-huh. too long to do now. Um, uh-huh. Now I have, I have other eye complications, but I, uh, I can see 2020. So I went from blind to 2020 and I put on my old glasses, just so fucking blurry, <laughs> like unbelievable. It's amazing. And now I, and then I could see without my glasses. So I would take them off and I put them on. Mm-hmm. It was blurry and I could see it without them. And I had that moment of, you know, that coming, that vision coming to life. Right. And it's a lesson that if we grow, if we have the courage to grow and change, we do better. Mm -hmm. 
what used to help you now blurs you. Right. As you move, you've moved beyond that. Yes, exactly. Um, and, um, so when you, I could get, I'm going to get a little schmaltzy when you say the thing that experiences I've had to share with. Okay. A couple, you said experiences I've had that can change other people. Yeah. Just a piece of wisdom that you've gained in your life that you think could transform someone else's life. Okay. The number one, I'll start with the deep one, which is, uh, I've gotten, I've gotten cancer twice now. Um, both times, um, I have, I, I've been told I have cancer. I've been through chemo round rounds of major chemo twice, never lost a hair, never got tired, barely noticed it. You barely noticed the chemo? Oh. Barely noticed wow. it didn't change my life at all. I it so I have this I've odd never experience. Heard that That's crazy. Oh, That's I've good. had this odd experience. It could um the fact that I have cancer is a I'm told that. That's a <laughs> it's word of mouth I have cancer. I have no evidence of cancer. I trust the biopsies, but wow. um yeah, it is never in fact, chemo both times cured my psoriasis. Huh. But it, it's the only <laughs> side effect is I got this patch of dry skin in my leg and it goes away. That's amazing. <laughs> I know. Have they um, seen however, this before? Have they heard of that? Not I think so. I think. Um, I think huh. when you're young, um, I've asked that and my doctors have said, yeah, you're young. It sometimes doesn't... Uh, it just doesn't bother you. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, however, you get cancer, you face, it's scary. You face mortality. And I have, mm. so what I would impart to people is I have, I feel like I have looked into the life, whatever you want to call it, God, life, higher power, meaning Buddha, whatever. Uh-huh. And in my heart of hearts, I know it's all about love. Mm-hmm. And when you get into the fear of dying, for me, when you strip that all away, it's about the people you love. It's all about my son. Exactly. Um, and the re- and so we are. It's all about my son. It's all about moments we have with the people we love, which is cliche, but I, I lived the Hallmark movie of it. Like I went through mm-hmm. it and I could feel it. Um, I, I've, I felt the same exact thing. That feeling of what really matters is only love. That's, like, yeah. that's all you're thinking about when you're dying. And if you don't mind me asking, who is that? Like I had the gift of having, when you have a kid, that's pure love. Mm-hmm. What, what did that manifest for you? Who were you thinking about? Uh, or it's what, kind of, or... it's kind of a crazy story that would be too long to tell, but I don't, I mean, it sounds kind of unbelievable, but I've had, I have, I would have like visions when I, cause I would actually die briefly and come back and it's of a person I don't know. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, it seemed like what it happened mi- many times cause it's, I had to have my heart reset many times. 
Um, and yeah, I found them on the internet, kind of like who I've, who I've seen. Uh-huh. And I felt like I saw something in my future, um, uh-huh. which sounds obviously how it sounds, you know, but uh, it's happened to me multiple times and I don't deny it anymore. Mm-hmm. So I'm following that, but also I just, I, it taught me and I really, I think I needed to die a lot in my life uh-huh. early on in order to get me to the point I'm at now. I think to the point that I'm at now spiritually, um, would have taken me to, I was like 80 if I didn't go through these experiences I had now. Uh, now I genuinely feel like a field of love around me. And I never felt mm. that before. I always felt kind of unworthy and just separate. Mm. Sometimes almost I looked at myself like a monster because a lot of people treated me like that. And I never really let it bother me, but it was in my subconscious. Uh-huh. And it would attack me at times when I was, I kind of talked about this in one of the essays I released um, lately on YouTube about how, about how when you're at ease in time, there's more space for your demons to attack you. And when I was at rest and I thought I was okay, my subconscious would like attack me with all these bad thoughts and a lot of it would come out. And the more I died and worked through those demons, the more I became my authentic self. And my authentic self is really that I just want to love everyone of all races, religions, ethnicities, just people around me, even people that don't like me. I I Uh choose to love even if they um, don't show me love. And a lot of the time that I followed my heart and what I have inside me, the people around me have changed uh, who were like not kind people or we talked about Uh earlier humorless kind of mean people Uh i've noticed those people change just because i changed and i as i get older i want to use comedy to lower people's defenses and try and spread love and meaning through through that um so i I see comedy more as like i love comedy i comedy helped me survive all the things in my life everything but i see it almost as a tool for me to use to bring meaning Uh to other people's lives with uh, ideas greater than myself. So when I say love, uh, the experience in love when you're dying, it's understanding that the the people that you love and the ideas you love are already within you. And if you follow love, every, all of it will be attracted into like a being of one. So uh-huh. that's uh-huh. kind of what I mean. I don't know if I went yeah. off on a tangent there, but no, <laughs> not at all. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What he said, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I have a uh, client. Okay, right yeah, now. yeah. Sorry, this was a long one. I know I said only an hour, but we had a good. It was a great conversation. That was great. It was great talking to you, man. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. Again, um, just to plug his podcast. Uh, you want you want to plug it one more time, Dan? Yeah. Sure. You want you want to say it? Or you want me to say it? You can say it. Let's um, get everything out of there. You what want. did I say? Parenting with Dan Rothenberg, connecting with teenagers and young adults. Let's. Cool. Uh, you can find love- it. On um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, pretty much for now it's just an audio only podcast, but you can find right. it everywhere you can find podcasts available. It's nice and that I can finally say that. Look for it wherever podcasts. Yes, wherever podcasts are available. Are available. Yes. So uh, thanks everyone for watching the return of the Chairman of the Board podcast. Yeah, congratulations. Have, uh, thank you. I'll have many more episodes to come, and uh, I appreciate you taking the time to listen. Have a great day. Thanks rest for having your, me, Michael. 
No problem, Dan. Thank you for, for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks everyone Pleasure. for watching. 